Club Podcast. Richard West finding out about film and improvisation. Welcome to episode two of the Impro Film Club podcast. In this episode, I've been speaking to the artist John Smith. And when I first started thinking about film and improvisation, I was thinking mostly about the choices that actors were making in front of a camera. But over time, I started to consider what role improvisation could have for everybody else making creative decisions in the filmmaking process, be it the person pointing the camera or the editing process. And John is a great person to talk to about this because his films almost never have actors in them. He seems to leave nothing to chance. He has control over every aspect of his films. And yet, as it comes turns out in our conversation, he thinks of his films as being improvised in many ways. So I started by asking him, what does he mean by improvisation? What I mean by improvisation is not really knowing what I'm going to do next. <laughs> but that improvisation in my work is always, almost always, or, uh, in response to some unforeseen event that happens in front of the camera. So film like Hackney Marshes, where I'm filming what goes on on these um, on Hackney Marshes in East London, which at that time was largely a lot of football pitches. I was had kind of formal ideas to do with animating the environment through cutting, uh, which were interrupted when a runner came by. Maybe I would, on the spur of the moment, decide that the camera was going to follow that person and break my formal structure. So improvisation in my work is usually cued by something else more than, oh, it's just coming to my head and I'll do it now. It's almost like you've you set up a game. You'll have somebody walking across the frame and then they enter the goalposts and the goalposts become like a frame within the frame. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you, you cut when they leave when they leave that frame. That's right. Yeah. The, is, did you only discover that game afterwards or did you discover it when you were filming it? Uh, when I was filming, because that film is actually edited in the camera. Wow. There aren't any splices in it. Well, there's one or two where I actually made a serious mistake. But in the whole film, which is a lot of very short shots, there are probably 10, 10 joins and there are thousands of shots. So, yeah, that's a very good example of an improvisation based on something that happened. I noticed this guy was running. He happened to have a red tracksuit top. So even in the distance, he was very, very visible. And he ran behind one set of goalposts and I realised from looking around that he was probably going to do a circuit around all of these football pitches. On the spur of the moment I just said okay I'll start the camera as he gets within the frame of the goalpost and uh, switch it off as he as he exits. What I was doing in the film, the, the, the initial idea for the film was all to do with creating the illusion of movement through cutting through cutting between similarly framed identical objects. Yep. So Basically, there was a row of five tower blocks and I had the camera in one central position and filmed each one. But I, if, if I framed each one of them centrally in the frame, because one had was looking slightly to, to the left side of one and the right side of the other, when you cut between the different images, it appeared as if it was a single tower block actually rotating slightly. And I had a similar idea with the goalposts on the football pitch. So what I did was... The position of the camera was 
it, the whole film was shot from one camera position as well. The camera didn't move over the course of the day. I positioned the camera in line with the middle tower block of the row of five, but also between four goalposts of, 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 of four different football pitches. So it meant that if I panned my camera around, each goalpost would be on the same scale, but from a different angle. Mm. So it meant that I could create these kind of uh, um, animation effects. There's a motorbike drives past at one point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So this is something that comes up in your later films, the question of whether you can resist something that's uh, sort of uh, exciting. Yeah. uh, (laughs) You didn't have any pre-warning that that was going to happen. No, not at all. And of course, there are many events that one misses. You know, I mean, I I can't remember all the things that happened that I didn't actually manage to film in time. But... Mm. uh, Fortunately, with that situation, I, I, I could. It's one advantage of having the camera set. You say, okay, the camera's going to be in one position for the whole film. So yeah. uh, in that film, as in hell of a lot of my other stuff, it's all about waiting, basically, waiting for something to happen. And uh, But I quite like to work with really mundane and ordinary situations so that even a motorbike driving by becomes an exciting and dramatic event, which, of course, uh, in terms of Hollywood films and car chases and all that would be absolutely <laughs> absolutely uh, inconsequential and, yeah. And, yeah, and, yeah. and no interest whatsoever. In, in a way, I thought, when I first saw your films, that you would be a candidate for the person who was involved in the least possible improvisation that kind of accident is is something you're minimizing in most of the way you set up your projects well i i kind of need it actually to be honest though to actually have that element in the in the work uh, in a way i am completely in control because i can basically decide whether that's in the film or not you know so yeah. <laughs> and there's no one else playing a part in making those those decisions mm. how uh, much are you accommodating these accidents like you told a nice story about what happened when you were recording the sound on the girl chewing gum. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so in this, in the girl chewing gum, you're filming a street corner, and you said that when you arrived, there was a burglar alarm going off. Right now, I want the old man with white hair and glasses to cross the road. Come on, quickly! Look this way. Now walk off to the left. Okay, fine. Now let's have the man in the pink cap. Put the cigarette in your mouth. Good. And I want the two girls to come in from the right talking to each other. I had to actually weave a, a narrative which actually explained explained the burglar I'm running going off. So I, I mentioned there's been a robbery. Yeah. Those things are kind of that things going wrong, those sort of accidents that one has to accommodate, for me, I think I find really exciting and I really like the, although I can be really pissed off when, when it actually first happens, I very often find because one has to find a way out of that situation that, 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 um, that very often one can be at one's most inventive when you actually have that problem set to you. So, I mean, you have accidents that you have to accommodate but there are also things about the way you set up the structure of the film. For example, you said, you know, I've put the camera in one place, so I'm not mm-hmm. going to move the camera. Those types of things also are a kind of a constraint on you. I need to actually impose restraints on myself. I, I really 
I always find it much easier to work within some kind of some kind of um, framework which actually limits what the possibilities are. I mean, also a lot of my work is really about, in a way, making rules and you know, inventing languages. But I, what I kind of quite like to do is to actually invent a language, teach the viewer the language, and then when they just think they're learning it, then you change the rules. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, it's. I mean, I like that sort of idea of game playing with the, with the viewer in a way. I mean, hopefully. You present somebody which initially maybe is a bit baffling, and then you, then you start to actually understand it. You get involved in it. You get, you know, sort of, you start to get pleasure in the fact that you, that you've got it. Yes. <laughs> and then if one changes the rules, then it's kind of like, oh god, you know, it's not. But I hope it's a kind of inclusive joke rather than being like a, a joke on the viewer. You know, yes. I, 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 it's 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 not it's not meant to be kind of say, oh, you you're so stupid, you would understand. <laughs> I suppose there's something about improvisation that makes it attractive for the audience is that you you get a similar feeling when you're watching it that something has happened spontaneously mm. and is that what it's like for you when you're making it <laughs> or that's a particular moment of invention yeah well it depends whether that moment comes happens then or later I mean you know with the gotcha and gum it was later and I because I, 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 uh, I had to think of a way around it uh, whereas the motorbike going by, it's an immediate reaction. You think, oh, it's great that that happened, you know. Yes. And uh, I, I'm, I'm always shooting stuff where I'm waiting, just waiting for something to happen. It's one of the reasons that I work on my own a lot. Is I couldn't actually expect anybody else to hang around the way, not, which I do, maybe waiting for a shot for two hours or, yes. or more, you know. Or, which is a mixed blessing. I mean, I'm <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> on a rainy day. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm working on something at the moment where I'm, I'm. It involves kind of changes in in weather again, actually. But uh, I've spent days sitting with the camera on a one particular framing, filming the light changing on architecture, or the or whether it's windy or still, or whether it's rainy or sunny. And when I actually look through these hundreds of shots I've got, <laughs> I'm thinking, well, they all look the same, you know. And uh, and uh, you know, eventually, I will be able to pull out very very different shots and you know I'm confident I'll get what I want from the material but it means I've got to actually go through and look through literally hundreds of shots to find three shots to take from that sample yes unfortunately I'm not very good at logging stuff as I go along partly because it is there is that kind of improvisational thing going on in in the head while you're filming so like something will happen in front of the camera and then you think ah Oh yeah, no, I want something like that to happen again, or, or, or you know, I, I missed that big tractor going by, but that would actually really make it. So uh, yeah, it doesn't allow you too much. I was if I stop and actually write down what happened in the last shot, I'm going to miss what's about to happen. Yes, but you wouldn't go and pay the tractor driver a tenner to drive past. <laughs> occasionally, occasionally, <laughs> I have done that. Actually, I did get uh, I, I did get Miranda, my partner, to uh, drive the car past at night. I've basically been waiting for so long. <laughs> yes, I just wanted a car head, some car headlights to go by. So, so I'm not a kind of complete purist in that yeah. way at all. You do mention it in a couple of times in the films in Home Sweet. You, there's a moment at which you switch off the camera by mistake, or they, that's yeah. what you say anyway, yeah. <laughs> and you say, "Oh, I've broken the integrity of the shot." Yeah. <laughs> and it, as, did you really think that, or, yeah. or you, there was that a kind of uh, yeah, that's exactly what I thought. And, th and so that's a rule that you'd made for yourself. Yeah. 
Do you you wouldn't write these rules down? They're just in your head when you start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And are you sometimes not aware of what they are? Uh, well, I, I couldn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> or do you, you find out later? No, no. I usually I usually know know before. I mean, the the, the one shot thing is quite a big thing for me because I think. I mean, I always start off with the principle that a film should be one shot unless it needs to be more than one. And if there needs to be more than one, there should be a reason for it. You know, I have problems with you. Know, once you go over one, it could be any number. You know. Yes. <laughs> and I also like the sense of actually capturing something in re- in real time. I think is kind of quite. I think it gives it gives a kind of an immediacy to the work. You know. So. The Hotel Diaries videos, for example, it's really necessary that they're they're single shot. Yes. Although, of course, sometimes people think, "Oh, the voiceovers dubbed on afterwards." You know. Yes, I must admit, I thought that. that no, it's recorded at the time. You know, and that, that's very important to it. But it's, um, yeah, if you watch all of them, you'll see there's one or two places where you can see me in the mirror talking in sync. So it's uh, yeah, that, but uh, that's one thing I discovered quite early on that it's really hard to actually make the viewer confident that a disembodied voice is actually synchronous with the filming. Yes. Yes, the synchronicity of sound, that is a major thing that you become aware of watching the films, is the question of the mm-hmm. whether the sound is being recorded at the same time that yeah. the images are being shot. Yeah, yeah. And in, for most of your films, they're not. No, no, yeah, very rarely, because... Um, if you're doing it all on your own, it's uh, it's harder to con- it's a bit hard to concentrate on doing sound and image at the same time. But I prefer actually to work with sound and image independently. I don't I don't really like. I mean, one can always make sound synchronous. You can always post synchronize it. But I don't like being trapped by having an image and sound that have to go together. Which is one reason I very very rarely use lip sync in, in, in the films because I want to be able to have a, a dynamic between image and sound that is f- free and I can put whatever sound, sound I want against whatever image you know why would it why would it be a trap <laughs> I, th- I think it just limits the creative possibilities of, 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 of the work to actually have uh, to be to, it, it 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 reduces the potential of sound. I think to have to to, to have it as a slave to the image, or, or vice versa, depending on how you how, how you how you look at it. I mean, to me, I like there to be kind of a counterpoint between image and sound, to some kind of dialectic. You know, where very often there might be an element of mystery as to why that sound is with that image, and uh, and usually it will be explained at some point in the film. You'll see the you'll see the source of the sound and realise that it connects with something which maybe you weren't aware of at the time. But just in sense of a kind of musical and rhythmical structuring, I, I th- like to think of sound as with image in relation to its abstract qualities as well as its representational qualities. So although almost all of the sounds in my films actually are connected to the imagery in some way although you might not necessarily see them at the same time but they all have a kind of logical source sometimes those sounds will get used for abstract or musical reasons rather than purely illustrative ones you know so you know there's a point in the the black tower where i have you know i've had a shot of somebody soaring branches off a tree i've had the sound of a ice cream van playing Popeye the Sailor Man going by and 
for you know, narrative reasons, they've been there. But at a certain point, I just said, "Okay, I'm going to mix that sound of the of the soaring with the sound of the ice cream van because I like I, I like the, those different textures next to each other." You know, I wanted to talk about the Black Tower. So the film is about a man who is haunted and who's the narrator who's haunted by this black tower that seems to be following him around. The tower was still on my mind, so after breakfast I went out to take a closer look at it and find out exactly what it was used for. When I got to the place where I first spotted it, it was nowhere to be seen. I walked back along the road nearer to the front gardens. I even stood on the garden walls, but I still couldn't see anything over the rooftops. I walked the surrounding streets in case I'd taken the wrong turning, but there was still no sign of the tower. I went back to Crownfield Road and I couldn't see it from there either, so I went into the newsagents on the other side of the street and asked the man there what had happened to the tower. To my great relief, he told me it had been demolished the previous week. I bought the local paper and left the shop. It was starting to rain. I felt like getting out of London for a while. There's a moment in the film when he sees it coming closer to him and he starts to run away and it, it becomes the sound of running footsteps. And then the image goes to this quick cutting between different views around the tower, which gets closer and closer. I mean, in a kind of improvised context, it's that it's a, it seems like a sort of a spontaneous moment of uh, what a brilliant way of representing that. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Was, was it spontaneous or was it all planned out to when you that were... was very planned and yeah, that was very, it was very very planned and you know and I'm using a tried and tested device that I'd used in the Hackney Marshes film we were talking about earlier yes I knew I wanted to make something which was I wanted this sort of I wanted to have a certain kind of psychological threat to it but I didn't want that to be presented in a naturalistic way so as you say the movement of the tower is doesn't it doesn't look like the tower's chasing you <laughs> but it nevertheless it's quite it's quite oppressive I really wasn't I suppose primarily thinking of that cutting of those images in that sequence as representing any kind of narrative or psychological position in a way it was just the, I just like what it looked like when it, mm. when you do that you know and uh, and I like to make what I call hybrid films where I'm mixing really really different ingredients together uh, but trying to find a way to actually make those connect so I mean the Black Tower is sort of uh, is probably the strongest example of that because on one level it's a very straightforward conventional narrative it's the most it's the only kind of film I've made really that has a kind of straightforward linear narrative to it but for me that's actually only a small part of the film only having that aspect to it another in other respects it's a completely abstract film it's just to do with flat color and graphic shapes and 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 cut to the the sound of footsteps which could be any other sound as well it could be a drum beat it could yes. be lots of different things so it's a, there's a kind of abstract effect there but I like to make work where you're not sure what's going to happen. You know, it's a bit of a surprise what happens next, and yes. and it's very hard to place within a genre. 
I mean, although people describe that film as being a film about so-and-so, so-and-so, I have to say the narrative is absolutely not important to me whatsoever. (laughs) What it's about for me is, in the same way as the God Chewing Gum is, is an experiment with the power of the word to actually suggest that images hold a lot more meaning than they really do. Mm. And uh, so the fundamental thing about that film is that the voiceover is saying that the tower is in different places. I'm showing images of the tower in exactly the same place, just shot from different angles. And I was interested in the fact that I was pretty um, confident that what you're being told would actually introduce an element of doubt into the into reality and uh, and very often people said to me after watching that film how did you find so many towers <laughs> yes. that were the same and other people said oh it's a super you know is it a superimposition of the tower and the landscape which um which obviously demonstrated the kind of success of my idea in terms of the power of language but unfortunately it was very disappointing because it actually people reading it in that way completely undermines <laughs> what I was intending to be of interest in the film. <laughs> in improvisation, in a sort of theatrical context, people talk about character as being what the actor does under certain circumstances. You almost wanted to describe them as, as if they were sort of colourless or neutral. Yeah. And is that because you want the who they are to be defined by what happens to them? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want it to be universal. I think, uh, you know, I don't want it to be, oh, this happened to a particular kind of person, or I want it, I want the viewer to think that could be me. <laughs> you know, it could be any of us. I think it's just to do with it. It's to do with the, with the interest in the ordinary as well, you know. I mean, I don't, I, I think if one plays things down, then one can actually create a dramatic moment out of something which is in, in everyday life wouldn't be dramatic. <laughs> I awoke feeling strangely calm. I cooked myself a fried breakfast and started to take stock of my situation. It seemed as though I would have to stay at home from now on as there was little doubt that I would encounter the tower again if I went out. I resigned myself to my fate. The days passed quickly at first, as I was spending most of my time working on this script. Writing had never come easily to me, and I found the pacing of dramatic fiction extremely challenging. In some ways, I appreciated my incarceration, as it forced me to keep working. I mean, if that voice in the Black Tower had expressed, you know, sort of fear and horror and things, I think this, the film would have been much, much weaker. I think it's, uh, I think the fact we have to imagine a character, we have to invest the character with something ourselves, uh, I think hopefully engages, yeah, engages the, the imagination more. I was very shocked when I first started showing the film, and it's a bit stupid that I was shocked because... You know, I'm very aware of the power of narrative, and people still ask me this quite a lot. They say, you know, have you do you, have you had mental health issues yourself, or have you worked in? Um, and I, I know I've, I've had this from people who actually actually are you know psychologists or people who actually work with mentally ill people, and they say it's very convincing. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of this idea of paranoid schizophrenia, you know, so yeah. the, 
it's interesting because it's not what I'm wanting to depict <laughs> anything particular at all. I mean, the only thing that was important to me was that the film does actually psychologically involve you in the narrative, but at the same time has enough distance that you can actually step back from it and grin you know, be thrown back into a situation where you're very aware you're looking at something which is an, an artifice. So I like the idea of it comes out of my sort of love-hate relationship with mainstream cinema in a way, and 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 and, and language in that, you know, we can be actually completely sucked into something, and I can watch a Hollywood film and you know identify with Arnold Schwarzenegger or Clint Eastwood, you know, people that I would despise in real life, but I still want them to succeed in their horrific mission <laughs> they're engaging in in the Hollywood film. So I mean that, that, that ideologically, I'm completely opposed to that sort of stuff. But I, I but I also love a good story, you know. Yes. <laughs> so it's uh, so I, I I like kind of playing with playing with that pleasure of storytelling and, and being drawn into narrative, but at the same time, not completely controlling the viewer. The, you Before you were talking about a film with the horizon. That's right. that yeah. Horizons. Yeah. yeah, that's right, yeah. But then at the same time, you were also filming another, making another film called Soft Work. That's right, because what I was doing, I was waiting around with my camera set up on the sea, waiting for things to happen, waiting for boats to come by or people to walk by and things like this. And... Uh, I had my camera set up, I had my microphone set up, so I just started um, initially just talking about waiting and uh, the things that were going through my head about, well, many things, but largely to do with the technical process of yes. trying to film the scene in a particular in a particular way. still don't feel very confident about my work sometimes. I've got a bit of a deadline for this, it's got to be finished in six weeks time and I'm still not sure what shape it's going to take so I'm just uh, accumulating as many possibilities as I can and uh, what ends up in the finished, finished film I don't know, I have to wait and see. Uh, I think, I think that some kind of, some kind of spoken spoken elements going to be quite important. Another one of the ways, one way that uh, can counteract those bloody sunsets. I want to get typecast as a sunset filmmaker. That was interesting to do because I really didn't know what was going to, what I was going to say next, or what I was going <laughs> to. Yes. Just then, a little event would happen, and that would actually trigger a chain of trigger a chain of thought, you know. And, uh, do you write down your narration? It depends. I mean, yeah, they were in the Black Tower and Slow Glass are completely scripted, you know, absolutely word for word. Soft work that we were just talking about. I didn't write anything down at all. That was literally just things that came into my head at the time. The Hotel Diaries videos, which are all, you know, they're all improvised, but they are, you know, I know what I want to talk about in them. They're absolutely planned, but they're not scripted. So I, I, I know what I want to talk about. I work out how I'm going to segue from one thing to something else, which is completely unrelated. And I plan what the camera's going to be looking at when I say a particular thing, because um, very often there are, you know, 
metaphorical connections between what the camera's looking at and what I'm, what I'm talking about. So, um, but they're not, um, yeah, they're not, they're not, they're not scripted as such. But I might write notes which actually remind me about sequence and things like that. And in fact, in the hotel diaries, in a lot of them, you can see that there are kind of notebooks lying around. And I've actually, and if you look closely, you can see it actually, it, they're describing what I'm going to be talking about. So I quite like the idea of exposing the process in that way, although most of it's not very legible. But. One of the hotel diaries, you were trying not to arrive at a punchline. Uh, yeah, I think it's the Throwing Stones, the third one. One of the things that is legible in the notebook is it says no ending, exclamation mark, undermine, and what I mean by that is no punchline. It's because the film before, called Museum Piece, which is a you know, very serious film, ends with a really, with a kind of groan-worthy pun at the end of it, which is to do with the, the film Schindler's List, and I'm I'm at the beginning of the film. I'm talking about having a having a, a bit of a lisp, and uh, and at the end of the film, I'm in, I'm stuck in a lift. I've been talking about various things, and then bring them together by saying, you know, I realised that I was in Schindler's lift because Schindler is a make of make of lift. And I when I made that piece, I was just bothered that people might think the whole purpose of this film which I hope is making very serious points <laughs> uh, was to make this make this pun at the end so that's why I decided okay I definitely don't want to don't want a punchline on the next one yeah. you do, you but do it is a weakness I have anyway I mean, <laughs> yes, I, I'm a sucker for having having kind of joke you know very often puns yes. at the ends of films so I kind of try and uh, try and avoid them <laughs> yes Okay. A friend of mine was talking about a Chandelou, the Bunel film, a sort of kind of milestone in surrealist cinema, and saying that quite a lot of the things in the film which are very difficult to account for uh, actually come out of puns. Oh, really? The ants in the hand is apparently a, as a euphemism for masturbation. Oh, is it? Oh. Yes. <laughs> so so that in some sense, it's quite a literal uh-huh. quite a literal film, which I thought oh, was interesting. Oh. And it sort of connects with your films in a way, because they uh-huh. are often pun-based. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I like the way that you it create... Well, it, it, things, a situation can be... A, a surreal situation can be created out of a pun. I mean, I said in my film, the film Gargantuan, which... Means, which ends at, which involves me singing a love song to a newt in bed uh, comes out of a <laughs> comes out of a pun on the word minute so I was to say with the black tower I mean the narrative of the black tower comes out of the places where I could see the tower the tower was actually in the grounds of a hospital so I thought okay sickness can be one theme in the film you could see it across the graveyard so I thought okay death great Sickness and death, common themes and narrative. And then it, the, the story built up in that way. I could see it above some trees. So I thought, okay, he's got to go to the country. And I could see it above a high wall. I thought, oh, that could be a prison. Maybe he goes to visit somebody in prison. So none of the narrative is of any consequence whatsoever. It's all just about, <laughs> it's all just triggered by, by, by place. And, and uh, Do you, Are you somebody who, talking about the sort of puns and punchlines, if you were a novelist at the start, would you know at the start what the ending was going to be or not? I'm not sure. I don't. I. I. I can't imagine I would. Or if if I if if I did at the beginning, I would change my mind before the end. Okay. So it's important <laughs> that it's in flux. Yeah. Yeah. No. Definitely. I think it's. Uh, I mean, for me, I think I need that excitement of the journey of not knowing where you're going 
yourself, you know, and actually in order to keep enthusiasm about working on an idea. I mean, I think if if one knows the end point for sure, then maybe it just becomes a bit too much of a job of work, thinking how am I going to get from the beginning to that, you know. That. Do you enjoy the actual filmmaking process? Do you enjoy operating the camera and... No, no, I hate it. No, not usually. No, I like editing. Well, I like editing after a certain point. I mean, I hate editing as well to begin with because it's like, oh, shit, I'm, you know, it's, it's all rubbish, you know. And that. But once you get to a certain point and think, ah, oh, yeah, it's going to work, then uh, then there is a certain period of time that filmmaking is actually pleasurable. Yes. <laughs> I like thinking of the ideas. You know, when I get excited by an idea, but that actually, actually filming I find pretty stressful. And you, you collaborated with a cinematographer quite often over the not often no no only um there's there's only one person i've ever worked with who's a friend of mine called patrick duval who's a who is a uh, director of photography who um i was at college with i was i was leading up to the question of how much you like to collaborate well i made a couple of other pieces which are collaborations which are actually theoretically kind of directorial collaborations as well and uh, I don't like it at all because it brings out a very bad side in me because I'm a complete control freak. So <laughs> I kind of end up dominating the work, you know. So, you know, a piece like Lost Sound, which was sort of, you know, came about through Graham Miller's idea, I ended up completely taking over, you know. And um, so it doesn't make you feel very good about yourself. I mean, yes. I'd, li- I'd love to be able to collaborate with people. In some ways, I like. Actually, the filming of Lost Sound with Graham, I really enjoyed because we were do- it was something we were doing together. So I wish I could enjoy collaborating. Watching your films in sequence, one thing that's striking is the the moment at which you can you start to use digital cameras, uh-huh. and in Home Sweet, which is the, your longest film, I think, um, and during the course of the film, we see the box from which you've just taken the camera, <laughs> and, the, the, and you're explaining that you don't know how to operate it. Oh, yeah. um, uh-huh. You're you're suddenly able to sh- shoot in a kind of uh, unconstrained way. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Did that pr- sort of feel like you were changing your method? Uh, no, it was adding to adding to one's list of possibilities. Basically, I mean, it was really liberating. That was great. I, mean, it was, I, I was really really pleased when. Uh, all of a sudden I felt as though I could actually make work in an entirely different way and an unpremeditated way and uh, mainly because I spent so long on planning and shooting things you know I mean the films up until Home Sweet the you know the film before that Slow Glass was made over three years uh, The Black Tower was made over three years Shepherd's Delight before that was made over four years so Generally, my films were taking longer and longer to make. <laughs> so you, we were saying before at the beginning of this conversation that uh, you you kind of welcome the constraints, if even if they're self-imposed, mm. because they limit the number of decisions you've made. So then, the point at which now the camera and the technology allows you to do almost anything, mm-hmm. does that mean you've had to introduce more constraints <laughs> to to uh, to stop you just yeah. being able to film everything and? Uh, well, I I haven't found a way to do that. You know, which is uh, I I need to I need to find a constraint which stops me actually filming so much. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> You're still working that one out in a way. Yeah, yeah in a way. I mean, it's sort of I, one thing I do really miss actually is I one of the things I used to really enjoy, although it was very stressful 
partly because it was so expensive, but was doing like a sound dub at the end of the film, going to a dubbing theatre and uh, and mixing all those soundtracks which you'd never really had the opportunity to hear all together, you know. So, you know, maybe if I had six tracks of sound, you could only ever hear two at a time on an editing machine, you know, so it was always in your head. And, uh, and going into the dubbing theatre and getting like, that was something I did really appreciate having somebody else's expertise on actually. But, uh, partly because I now make kind of no budget films, you know, so I don't apply for funding anymore. <laughs> when I applied for funding, uh, I, I could be applying for funding again now and saying, okay, I need money to do a dub and things like that. But uh, in some ways I kind of, I can't be bothered. <laughs> I quite like the fact that I can produce work completely independently. And, yes. Uh, well, maybe that's slightly downbeat notes is a good place to stop. Okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you very much to John for that conversation. I really enjoyed it. If you've not seen any of John's films before, especially The Girl Chewing Gum and The Black Tower that we, that we talked about, you can probably find them on YouTube or Vimeo. They're both wonderful, especially The Black Tower, which is one of my favourite films in the whole world. There's also a DVD box set of his films. If you want to get in touch with me, then you can email me or contact me via Twitter. All the details are on the Impro Film Club website. If you enjoyed that episode, you can subscribe on iTunes in the usual way. I hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks for listening. <laughs>